episode one of the Political Science Report, where each week I'll go in-depth on an important piece of political science literature, mostly published articles. Very excited to get started. This is the inaugural episode. Um, If you want to listen to some of the vision behind the podcast and why I'm doing it, go ahead and listen to the introduction. That should be available, but we're starting our six-part series covering the six articles from the May 2022 edition of the American Political Science Review that have the highest attention score. So not necessarily citations, but the attention score takes into account, we can go over it later, uh, but it takes into account citations, tweets, blog mentions, geographical reach of an article. So kind of a holistic um, capturing of how impactful the article has been especially when it's only been out since May 2022, a couple of months. So we'll be covering the six most popular ones from that issue. Episode one today, we'll be covering how do electoral incentives affect legislator behavior, evidence from US US state legislatures. This one has an attention score of 102. Number one in the series has one of 456. And next week's we'll have a 108. So just to give a little bit of the scale of numbers there. This article, as I said, is in the American Political Science Review. I don't want to say all of that again, so it'll just be referred to as the APSR, henceforth. Um, Today we'll be reviewing this article. It's by Alexander Fornays. I hope I'm saying that right, and Andrew B. Hall. Fornays is at University of Chicago and Hall is at Stanford, both political science departments within top 10, I think maybe top five in the nation um, from the most recent updates that I saw. But before we get into the article, part of locating ourselves in this literature, there are many things to observe because there are so many things diving into any academic study, any new area in life. You have to learn a language, you have to get accustomed to it. And so it's just too much to say in a single episode, oh, these are all the norms, these are the expectations, this is all the context, this is the language. It's just a lot in a single podcast. So I think as we go, I'll kind of introduce some of the norms, the language, the expectations, the way that this realm in academia, political science, public policy, even economics a little bit, um, run their norms, I guess, one way to put it. So in political science, there are a number of journals that you can publish in. They're not all the same. They have different focuses, and some are more prestigious than others. They're not all created quite equally. So according to OOIR.org, which ranks political science journals based on something called an impact factor, produces a score based on citations and other things, I believe. Again, we can look into this at a later episode, but it's not the focus but they take into things like number of citations. I think they had a total of 28 metrics about each article. And they have, they've documented just thousands, even millions of articles. And so they put together something called impact factor and the rankings as of mid 2022. Number 10 is international organization with an impact score of 5.7. Again, these are the rankings of the most impactful political science journals. Number nine is the European Journal of Political Research, tied with a 5.7 score. Journal of Public Administration Research and Theory, 6.1. Public Communication, 6.1. 
Number six, international security, 7.1. Number five, review of international organizations has a 7.8. Here we are, the APSR is number four, where we're reading from, and that one, oh, I did not write down the score of that. Um, but it's somewhere between 7.8 and nine, because that's number three. Political analysis is 9.0. Then the top two, policy and society, has an impact score of 12.1. And annual review of political science has science, not science, has a score over 12 impact score. So number one, political science journal, as measured by these metrics, is the annual review of political science. I kind of confusing acronyms. The American one is APSR. This one is ARPS. So just be careful if you're looking those up. It's easy to say American Review of Political Science, and you'll get all confused. So. All of the journals, all of the articles in this series are coming from the APSR. Um, uh, one huge advantage that I'd like to advertise of the APSR, especially of more recent publications, is that they're open access on cambridge.com, cambridge.org. And you can just literally look up most recent edition of APSR journal and all of the articles will be available for you, which is really exciting. They're not hiding behind an expensive firewall that you have to be enrolled in a university to go to. They're not somewhere in Google Scholar that you only get a clipping of it, but all of these are free access, which I think is really um, important for public education and all kinds of reasons. So to now get into the article after being a little bit located in this realm of political science, Article again is titled, How Do Electoral Incentives Affect Legislator Behavior? Evidence from U.S. State Legislatures. Again, we just have to get introduced into it. The background's really important before we get started. Let's look at the professors who authored this article. Alexander Fornays, which is again how I'll be saying it. I hope that's correct. He's an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. His research interests are in political economy of elections, representation, accountability, causal inference, and applied econometrics. Would love to do a few episodes in the future about causal inference. That's something I took a class on quite recently. Um, it's very relevant in a lot of the quantitative research that's going on right now. So that'll be kind of in the background, almost assumed information as we go through, but hopefully in the future we'll have time to break that down a little bit more. He got his PhD at the London School of Economics, which I think is has uh, one of the most, one of the top 10 professors, or the amount of highly influential professors is top 10 in the world there. So it's a pretty renowned school. Had a good friend who got his master's there in international economics. He um, and Hall have another article from 2014. I believe they have more than one together, but they have one in 2014 titled The Financial Incumbency Advantage, Causes and Consequences in the Journal of Politics. He might have more articles more recently, but his CV was last updated in 2016, so six years. I think one time I was looking at a professor when I was applying to PhD programs, and it was like the most recent article was 20, like 2010 or something, you know, so was, his CV is 12 years old, so this isn't too bad, 2016. Andrew Hall, on the other hand, our other professor, is a professor at the Stanford, at Stanford in the political science department, as well as an honorary one in um, the business school. He, according to the website, he is the co-director of the Democracy and Polarization Lab and a senior fellow at the Standard, 
Stanford Institute for Economic Pol Policy Research. Got his BA at Stanford and his PhD at Harvard. So I didn't plan it this way exactly, but both of these researchers actually have quite intriguing backgrounds in stuff that I'm interested in around elections, American political behavior, even polarization. So maybe we'll come back to them later. Again, I'm just choosing the six most recently influential articles from the May edition of the APSR. He also, Hall, also studies campaign finance and interest groups, economic incentives and political behavior, and he also studies methods. So we have two illustrious and industrious professors putting this paper together with backgrounds in political economy, polarization, representativeness, um, and elections. And kind of under important undercurrent in a lot of this is, is the study of democracy. How does democracy function well? What best supports democracy? What does a healthy democracy look like? Um, and so those are just different facets of studying it. So two important pieces of work that undergird this paper and much of the ideology literature and polarization literature that are mentioned in this paper. This is as crucial an introduction that I could give to anyone interested in polarization and ideology, um, most specifically ideology in this context. Um, the one side in this paper, and it's basically obligatory when you do work on ideology, is a book titled The American Voter by Campbell. It came out in 1960. General finding, obviously this is way condensing it, but the general finding was that the American public was non-ideological. That is, it did not have great coherence and nuance of political views, and the majority of the American electorate did not pay that much attention or that close of attention or have that refined of a nuanced perspective on politics. And that again is The American Voter by Campbell in 1960. Importantly, a co-author of that book is Philip Converse, who four years later went on to write an equally influential article titled The Nature of Belief Systems in Mass Publics in 1964. So it's yet again another highly influential work that's widely cited as foundational in the ideology literature, especially in American ideology literature. He puts a more concerted effort into um, further developing the framework and the concept of ideology and belief systems. He equivocates the two in his article. He says, ideology, I'm just going to call them belief systems because that's a good way to think about it. So those are two really foundational works, 1960 and 1964 by um, Campbell and then the other one by Converse. There are two other authors on the Campbell one that I'm not, I have written down, but I'm not entirely familiar with them. Third is a book kind of in this line is how I'm drawing this genealogy. The third book in this line is The Nature and Origins of Mass Opinion by John Zoller who is still a professor at UCLA. It continued to build out and provide key insights on the ideologicalness of the American public. He went on to do his book, has a lot more quantitative work in it than the other ones do, more quantitative sophistication in his methods. And there's formulas that aren't necessarily he's like calculating ideology in some context, but he's giving the idea of ideology and persuasion a mathematical or algebraic expression. So you could see, oh, if my value for this over this, if A is greater than B, then A is gonna push B out and then I'll believe A instead of B. So there's a lot of kind of that work in there. It's a little more quantitatively sophisticated, as I mentioned. And finally, 
Those three works, very important for ideological research in American politics. And finally, the first work written by these two authors happened before Zoller, but I'm kind of grouping them in a slightly different category, more on, if you thought Zoller was quantitatively sophisticated, these two authors are very, very quantitatively sophisticated. They are Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal. I do want to make a note. I believe Howard Rosenthal passed away earlier this month in early August and just want to take a moment to recognize that and even as my early entry into political science have seen his name all over the place and just he's had an impact even on me as a very new initiate in this realm of literature. And so I just want to take a moment to pause and recognize that. The two works that these two put together that are very frequently cited in this realm that I've been able to take a look at and ascend, again, I'll say be influenced by um, ideology and Congress and a spatial model for roll call analysis. It's really a remarkable work. One of, the, one of my professors um, this last spring was teaching at the University of Georgia. Oh, I forget when, if it was Poole or Rosenthal was there and said that he was just brilliant in understanding methods. I'm sure both of them were, but anyway, what these works did was to develop with ridiculous rigor a model for measuring ideology based on roll call voting. So we can go more into roll call voting, but roll call voting is a very consistent form of voting that you see in Congress that essentially everyone does all the time. So there's tons and tons of data points on legislators' perspectives and their takes, their votes on issues. And so I would want to go through this more thoroughly before I present totally on what their methods are for quantifying this. I would need to review that before I were to faithfully relay it. Um, but that's essentially the model. So they built a model for visualizing, for quantifying someone's ideological position based on roll call voting. And I think it something as slippery a concept as ideology is really remarkable to find a method for quantifying something like that. And even in their book, Ideology in Congress, they say, hey, <laughs> this is a simplification of what exactly ideology is, which is part of the nature of quantifying something. But at the very same time, it's an incredible um, advancement in our study of understanding um, political behavior, particularly of legislators. And I would advise anyone, if you're interested in this, especially if you're visual, you can check out voteview.com, which has uh, all, I would say about all their data, and you can go back even to the legislature in 1786 or something like that. And you can see on a two-dimensional plane where Republicans fell, where Democrats fell. And then you can look every single, every two years as the Congress changes, you can see how they move and how they shift and just where everyone is, is located. And I won't go into it in any more length now. But each member of Congress in each Congress gets a data point. You can see essentially where they fall on a left, right, liberal, conservative. They base it mostly on economic, fiscally, um, conservative or liberal, um, the, the Congress person is. And so that's obviously not the whole story. You go on for a long, long time about how in-depth and how rigorous they are about this study. But this will be mentioned later. The W nominate, the DW nominate method, which is what they developed, 
is mentioned in tons and tons of polarization literature, ideology literature, and so it's really important to just lay that groundwork now as it will come up again in the future. And again, that website is voteview.com. Really, really cool. So all of that is important because like I said, um, the podcast, this podcast in political science um, is going to be touching on some of the these four different research efforts multiple times throughout um, its duration, hopefully. Another piece of very important literature that, or a person that I'm going to mention but not go into detail on, so just remember the name, is Anthony Downs. He's a really important figure, not going to go into it. We need to get into the article, so let's finally get into it. Article is really interesting because it addresses the role of term limits on officials' behavior. I like to kind of in not the highest, most distinguished way, but obviously not the most popular common way. I like to contrast the aim of an article with kind of common sense, with the generally held conceptions or beliefs at a time. And so this article is talking about term limits. Ah, to, really, to make it really crude, it's our term limits bad, our term limits good. What do they do? How do they affect someone who is re-running for office or someone who is now not able to rerun for office? Some people would say, oh, term limits are good because they keep someone who could be a tyrant for 30 years only in office for 10. Or term limits are bad because in your last, um, your termed out um, period, your termed out election that you win, you're not going to be motivated to win again. So what they're doing is they're saying, oh, how, how do term limits affect legislators? And really importantly, the legislators they're talking about are state legislators on state legislatures. Well, unbeknownst to many, each state, in addition to the federal, so the federal has its own legislature, each state has its own state legislature. Kind of reminds me of, I remember watching The Office, you know, when Angela meets and dates a senator, and everyone keeps reminding her, oh, he's just a state senator. Oh, I'm, going, I'm getting dinner with the senator. Oh, he's just a state senator. And as a, when I was younger, I was always confused. Like, oh, what's the difference? I don't understand. And so each state has its own Senate and House system. Not exactly. They differ between a couple states have just a single body, or I think just one state, but the rest are bicameral. Some are referred to as Senate, some are referred to as House, or House of Representatives, some are Assemblies. And so they have different titles. Each state is a little bit different, uh, but we'll go into some of the details of that later. But that's an important distinction. We're not looking at the federal legislature. We're looking at state legislatures. So most state legislatures are similar to the federal one. They have an upper and a lower house. Um, if you want to look more into this, you can just Google state legislatures. I'm sure us.gov, you know, has a site or something, or even Wikipedia probably has a pretty simplified site for you to look at. So I think this is interesting because you may say, oh, this isn't the actual federal government. So what does it matter that we're looking at these state legislatures? And this is what I really love about research is that you are almost never given your research context on a platter. Can't you say, I'm gonna study the effects of this and I'm gonna know exactly. Well, it doesn't quite work the same for the federal and state legislature, but the state legislature, they argue, is a really good proxy for in general, remember their context here is in general, how do term limits affect the behavior, the productivity of 
someone who's in office. And so that's something you spend a lot of time doing as a researcher is saying, oh, this is the research question I have. What is the method? What is the sample group that I'm going to use to get at the group that I'm not able to get at, which is every legislator, every governor, every president, every senator, every king, and I don't know, every single legislator in America, which is an incredibly, incredibly insane research thing to undertake. But what you can do is take a small sample of that that you hope has somewhat generalizable implications and be able to learn about the population from the sample that you're particularly looking at. So that's something I think is really fun about research is finding a not only creative because it needs to be accurate, but finding an accurate and creative way of getting at the population that you're trying to get at. So let's keep going here. So they're studying state legislatures. They're seeing how term limits and they're framing it as um, electoral incentives, but the incentives are the term limits. When you're termed down, you can't possibly win election again. There's not really incentive to try hard, right? But if you've won two elections and you can win one more in your second term, you're going to be trying really, really hard to win that third term. But then when you get to the third term and you can't win again, what, what incentive is there to try? So that's what they're looking at. Though The incentive is to... or. Sorry, let me put it this way. The incentive is that you have to compete against other people. If there's no incentive to getting reelected, getting a reward at the end of it, then you're not going to try. I'd probably run that into the ground. So one of the problems that they outline is overcoming the difficulties of a simple or a naive model. The naive model would say this. Well, if we're comparing people with term limits, and people who do not have term limits, let's just do this. Simply, naively, compare the actions of someone who is at their term limit and someone who is not at their term limit. Voila! I know the answer to this question. Well, it's not that simple. And I call it a naive estimate, and I'm getting some of that language from my causal inference professors because when you learn about selection bias which i hope to spend maybe a whole episode on because it changes the way you see all statistics when you start to think about selection bias in this context context and that's just the idea that the two groups you're comparing might not be created equally so that's the empirical difficulty in this literature you may think oh wow what brainiacs you know why don't they it's just as simple as comparing the two groups of people, people with term limits, people without term limits. So this is the methodological difficulty that this paper is trying to overcome. So the selection bias problem in this context, and I want to be clear about this, the selection bias in this context is that individuals who make it to their term limit will be on average higher quality than those who do not. So you're not comparing apples to apples by comparing someone who doesn't reach their term limit with someone who does reach their term limit. So think about it um, this way. Who are the types of people who find themselves in their term limit third year? On average, they're going to be of higher quality than people who only make it to their first year. 
who didn't have a term limit and had an incentive to work hard, that if you can make it through three cycles of election successfully, the group of people we find in the term limited group will on average be of higher quality. So if say they had a hundred units of output in their final term and a non-term limited person had 120 units of output, you would say, oh, there are, it seems that being in your term limit lowers results by 20 units. And again, I'm just making up these units because the non-term limited had 120 of output, but the term limited had 100. Well, that's really understating the impact of the term limit because the people who make it to their third term on average may average 300 units of output. And so it's understating it to only compare 120 to 100. You really should be comparing 300 or whatever I said, 300 to 100. And then you see, whoa, there's a huge drop off. And so that's the selection bias problem that we're not comparing apples and apples by looking at people who have termed out and people who are in just their first or even second um, term. So that's a, the basic selection bias problem in this context. So this is where it gets really exciting. And you thought that all of this was exciting, right? So now we move on from the problems as outlined a minute ago, why you can't just compare these two groups because they're apples and oranges. Um, so this is the author's solution. What they do is use state legislative data and compare an individual against how they did were they not at their term limit. So they use a difference in differences design, which again is kind of in that causal inference literature to explain how exactly that works. So again, another episode throwing that out there. Um, so they look at 14 states total. Arkansas, Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Maine, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Nevada, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Louisiana. So these are the 14 states that they look at in order to get at this term limit problem because these are all states that have term limits on their state legislatures. Something I found a little comical, and you could really see the humanity and the authors, is this statement here. So what they did is they found publicly accessible records of the legislators in their um, first, second, and third terms, you know, all their different roll call voting and everything like that. And they cleaned up the data so that it was, because you can't just, you know, most websites, you can't just look and then download something and have everything exactly you need. So a lot of data cleaning needs to go into this, um, a lot of effort to do that. And apparently some of the states did not have the best websites and it required tons of cleaning and on some you couldn't even download the information. You literally had, to, they had to literally manually type it in. So I found this really um, humanizing about the researchers here. I actually had, haven't seen this little note in an article before, but they said, because each state required its own tailored approach, in some cases, the data are relatively well formatted and can be scraped automatically before going through extensive cleaning. But in others, the approach must be almost entirely manual. The process was quite time consuming with each state taking several weeks, in parentheses, roughly 100 hours 
of concerted effort on average, end quote. And I love that they add that roughly 100 hours in there. It's almost like Fournays and Hall, you know, after a long day of scrubbing the data from, I don't know, Montana or Florida or something, you know, just having a beer together at the end of the day saying, we need to, we need to let someone know how hard we worked, 100 plus hours on just the single state getting the data in this into this article so they could analyze it. So thank you for doing that extra work. Thanks for, you know, showing us your humanity here and making a note of it. I know not asking for sympathy or anything like that, but I just do appreciate a little context on how difficult this data is to get at sometimes. So moving forward with some of that in mind. So those are the states and why they look at them. Again, they need to use term limits. So this is another thing that excites me, is how do you define effective or good legislative behavior, right? Because that's been the dependent variable all along. How do incentives affect behavior? So we talked about incentives, we talked about term limits, but what is legislative behavior and what is good legislative behavior? You can't just say, okay, legislative behavior, you know, and pull some number out of nowhere but you need, you need some metric to measure the legislative behavior. And again, this is such a fun part of research is saying, I have this question, I wanna measure happiness. How do I measure happiness? I wanna measure social polarization. How do I measure social polarization? And in this context, how do I measure legislative behavior? So what they do is they use three different methods. Um, typical models, or let me see. Yes, typical models will say that voters determine who they're going to vote for based on competence, based on productivity, and look to see if a the person you want to vote for is more competent and better than a challenger. And I do want to mention the names here. I've seen them before. I'm sure they'll come up again. Um, they're pretty notable researchers in this realm. So alt Bueno de Mesquita and Rose. Just want to mention them because they're really important in this paper. So the idea is that a voter typically thinks about how much you do and then from there assess if they're going to vote for you or vote against you. So a challenge in this realm is that we're talking about state legislatures and I'll refer to you. If you're maybe if you're a political scientist, I think even by the title of this article, again, selection bias will select for people who maybe are a little more interested in some of the more, to other people, boring parts, but to me, exciting parts of political science. So maybe you do pay attention to state legislatures, but my guess is that overall, voters typically don't really pay as much attention to state legislatures. So what they argue is that Congress people or state legislature um, representatives will focus on external, visible, outward actions to make it as easy as possible for voters to see their competences. They're not gonna lock themselves in their office and work 15 hours a day on some hidden but really beneficial agenda, no. Because voters already have low information on state legislatures, they're gonna spend as much time as they can on visible outward behavior. So that's what Fornays and Hall are basing their model of legislative behavior. They're specifically gonna call it um, what is it? Is it legislative productivity on? That's what they're going to base it on. So this model looks at three competencies 
that they're going to build their index of productivity from. So the degree to which, or the frequency with which, legislators introduce legislation, work on committees, and show up to vote on roll call votes. Here they address the contention, well, most voters aren't paying close attention to roll call votes, um, introduce legislation, and work in committees. Again, I said, oh, it's really visible. And you may say, oh, these aren't super visible. But here's, here's their answer. And I said, yeah, it's a, it's a decent point. It's still all within house, kind of. Um, but it's really common and prominent in a campaign to be effective to include information about committees that they've served on and that they voted for. Also on things they voted for. Or did I already say that? <laughs> so think, for example, I know recently with some big elections between Liz Cheney and her competitor, some of the big ads were saying, oh, my opponent, Liz Cheney, voted with Donald Trump on 93% of votes. So even though those votes happen behind closed doors or only in front of C-SPAN cameras, they can still be brought out into the public. And so another candidate could say, this year in office, I served on the education committee, so I care about our local youth. Or maybe the challenger hasn't done any of that. So even though all these things are happening behind closed doors, there's some closed doors, there's something you can easily and is publicly available to say, I served on this committee, I voted on this thing, I introduced this bill. Even if they don't go anywhere, you can at least say that. So they do really matter for campaigns and for elections. That's a really important point there. So this is a pretty um, strong, I would say, index, or it's just a well-defined measurement of productivity, and they give a solid argument for that. So they keep track of bills sponsored, service, and in their service on committees, they differentiate between being a committee chair, a vice chair, and just being a rank and file on the committee. They also count roll call votes. They put these three together. I won't go into the details on it. They put these three together to create a productivity index. Important thing to note here is that this is a productivity index, not a goodness index. So again, taking a step back to the meta of how research works is that you can't just say good legislative behavior, you know? You have to come up with things that it would be wrong for them to say, oh, these make a good legislator. No, these make a productive legislator. And even productive has an asterisk next to it that says these are the three measurements that we use to create an index of productivity that we're trying to get at competency and visible efficacy in swaying voters to vote for them. So there's a lot of layers there, and that's not to say they're bad, but they're just honest, and it's up to each person reading the article to determine is this an effective measurement of what they're trying to get at has to do with factors and unobservable variables because productivity is not an observable thing that you can look at. It's not like temperature. And so what you do as a researcher is you try to get at that unobservable variable in creative and accurate and effective and measurable ways. So an important note, this is productivity, not a purely goodness index. And we'll get back to that later. So this is something to keep in mind, as I said, and it seems to me a solid and honest approximation of what they're trying to get at. These are three really important and core parts of what it means to be a legislator. So just some even personal background, when I was interning with the Borgen Project, what we did is we would look through what did these candidates, um, it's a larger 
um, anti-poverty, poverty elimination campaign. And so when they meet with legislators, part of my job as an intern was to say, oh, this legislator served on this committee, voted or voted against this bill about um, the Global Hunger and Malnutrition Act or something like that. And so these are, from a very practical point of view, maybe not every voter, but interested voters and interest groups think about when they think about the effectiveness or how pleased they are with a candidate. So just to give it even some real world background, these are three important uh, measures that are putting together a good index of productivity. So that's part one. Because, so again, part one, they're looking at productivity. Number two, they wanna get at ideology. Does an official change their position based on electoral incentives? And for this, they use, and what does that mean in more um, layman speech? Does that mean that a candidate will shift their ideology when they don't have term limits? Will they, we go into depth a little bit more on this later, but will they say they're a really right candidate and they need more votes, so they'll move to the center. They have incentive to move to the center. But once they're termed out, will they shoot to the right because they don't need to please any more people? That's the question here. Do, do officials change their ideology, their positions based on electoral incentives? So this gets to the pool and Rosenthal um, research and quanti quant quantification of ideology. And they use the R package W nominate here. And using these estimates, they show two graphs where there are three time units, term one, term two, term three. Um, so again, that was part one and that was part two. And now we're talking about results. So what they do is that using these estimates, they show two graphs where there are three term units, term one, term two, term three. And you see the line going up for term one, you see it continuing up for term three, and then guess what, dropping off on term three. Did I say that right? It goes up on term one, up on term two, and then drops on term three. Same pattern holds for states that have four term limits, so it's not just this magical number three. States that have three and four, when you get to your term limit, you see big drop-off. So, and then it also separates productivity by number of re-elections, and it shows evidence of the initial statement that those who make it to their final term are of higher quality candidates, AKA more productive. So what that means, because I don't have visuals with me right here, is that if you're looking at the two graphs and on the Y axis, axis, the vertical axis, you plot productivity. And then on the X axis, you plot term one, term three, term four, um, and then final term. And so if you look at the two lines, the lines of those who make it to their third term who are termed out will be of average higher quality. They'll be higher on the y-axis and have a higher productivity index. So that initial intuition was correct. So going more in depth into results. And I think results are a cool part of every paper. They're kind of the, a lot of the abstract. They're a lot of what people take and run with, but I think the methods, the background, you learn so much about the research question just from the background. If you could have the results or everything else, you know, everything else is just so valuable. And that's what a lot of professors say and they introduce to you and you just really have to learn that for yourself. It's not like you can just say, I think it's kind of fake, you know, and some people are like, oh, results are 
you know, not very important, but all the rest is where the meat is. And I, I think that's really, really true. The more you get into it, you only learn one itty bit from the results, but you learn so much along the way of the differing opinions of how you got to this, of the intellectual background and history that it took to get to this question and how people have disagreed and all kinds of links and hyperlinks to different studies that you can just go on and on from. So just anyway, the tiny advertisement for everything but the results, but results are awesome too. So, uh, people who just rush to the results, like I said, are missing the journey on everything that came before. So, they do find, like I said, in the final term, controlling for fixed effects that having no electoral incentive, being in your term limit, does show a drop-off in productivity. To quantify that drop-off, the drop-off, they say, is a quarter of a standard deviation drop-off on legislator productivity. In the second column, they control for what I mentioned earlier. Um, and what I mentioned earlier, I actually didn't mention earlier. So what I mentioned earlier is that when you're looking at the quantity of legislation someone introduces or roll call votes that someone votes for, what if you're a Democrat in a strongly Republican controlled county or as a representative? And your constituents actually don't want you to vote. They don't want you to vote on things. They don't want you to participate in the, the flurry of bills that are coming from the Republican side. They want you to abstain from that. And so wouldn't that lower the productivity index, even though that legislator would be better given their context? And so that's a methodological difficulty that they use. What they do to answer that is they do majority controlled fixed effects. So they take your the score within, or they isolate if you're the majority party, you'll have kind of one average of legislation introduced, and if you're the minority party, you'll have kind of another average introduced. So they do address that, that uh, methodological difficulty of what does it mean to be a good legislator as a, in the minority party where you're getting tons and tons of legislation that your constituents don't want you to vote for, and so it actually means to be a better politician to be less productive. So they do answer that and they still find quarter of a deviation drop off in legislative productivity. They then go on to do some robustness checks that I won't go into detail here. Um, the effects, what they do is they bring in non-term limited states to verify their results. Um, they use Texas, I think it was New York, um, who have very different le state legislatures. New York's more professionalized. Texas isn't, which some we get into later. Uh, but they do bring in some other states. They do a bunch of checks to see, oh, is this um, a, are our results, do they stand up to multiple different measures? Or do we get kind of lucky with how we did it? So in terms of numbers, let's look at each number. So they break down the numbers into each um, different factor within their productivity index. So roll call voting drops off 2.7% when you're in your term limit. And they put this in an interesting way, they invert that. So the on average, the legislature legislators will vote 90% of the time which means that 10% of the time they don't vote. And so, actually, I don't think I'm gonna mention that. 
So next I turn towards interpretation of these numbers by the um, part, the factor within the index. Roll call voting they find in your final term, the causal effect of being in your final term, the causal effect of not having electoral incentives is a 2.7% drop off in roll call voting, a 6% reduction in number of bills introduced, and an 8% reduction in committee activity. So all pretty sizable, especially that 8%, 6%, those are notable differences. 2.7% is statistically significant, um, and it still marks a drop-off in behavior that isn't due to outside confounding factors. Um, important here, that goes along with their overall intuition is that they find heterogeneous effects. What are heterogeneous effects? Heterogeneous effects mean that there are different effects to different subgroups within a sample. So a lot of the causal inference literature gets some of the language from medical trials and stuff. So heterogeneous, heterogeneous effects, the easiest way to think about this is in terms of medicine. Say medicine has a 20% curing effect rate. 20% of the people that take it are much better. But it differs between men and women. What if for women it's 10% effective, but for men it's 30% effective? That's an important thing you need to know when you're looking at that 20% number. So that means there are heterogeneous effects. 20% on average, but 30% for men and 10% for women. So that's just, that's something that we really want to know about the medicine and that you can break down and that they do. So they find that, because again, their intuition is that if there's less incentives, you're going to drop your productivity. So they find that in less professionalized legislatures, that uh, productivity drops off more than in less professionalized legislatures. What do I mean by professionalized? Some legislatures have a full salary, it's a full-time job, and it's very structured. Full salary, full-time job, those are the important parts. Some are um, less professionalized, meaning they're not a full salary, it's not a full-time job. Losing it maybe means losing on nothing. It could be voluntary, it could be you know $2,000 a session. States are different, so the intuition would say person with the greater incentive is going to drop off lower than what their average was. So they found that people in professionalized legislatures, they saw a greater drop off because there's greater incentives to stay on and then once they weren't able to stay on anymore, their productivity dropped even greater. Um, they also found that in line with the intuition, they found that states that have a, some states have a term limit on one office and some states have a total term limit. So in a state like Colorado, where say you term out of um, state Senate, you can run for state house. But in a state like California, you, and I believe that's Colorado, sorry if I'm wrong about that, but in California, once you term out of the state senate, you can't run for anything else. So again, there's greater incentives along, but then when you drop that greater incentive, they find greater reductions in productivity. So supporting the overall logic of their finding, they compare California that's, that um, has total term limits and Oklahoma, which doesn't have term limits. 
or I can't tell, maybe those two are together, but the productivity drop-off is higher and it strengthens the case that incentives do operate, electoral incentives do operate um, within this context. So they get the main findings and then they check the intuition by looking at level of professionalization as well as what kind of term limits are are they working with within that state. So another interesting part of this work is its exploration of ideology, kind of we're turning to results in part two now. Dominant thesis proposed by Fiorina in 1973, I'm sure we'll be coming back to his work. Um, I don't know if he's the first to talk about this, but it's the, the marginality hypothesis which is essentially the hypothesis that candidates will move toward the center to gain more voters. Importantly, the movement to the center is a shift in ideology. So as I mentioned earlier, say someone is a far right candidate, but they're not gonna win like that because most of America is towards the center. They will necessarily have to shift towards the middle, change their platform, um, change their position. So that's kind of, and there's general intuition that most of America is in the middle. So you find candidates, um, not racing to the middle, but inching toward the middle, competing for the middle um, to see who's gonna win. So they shift their platform. However, if there's um, no more incentive to be elected, as I said earlier, that candidate may shoot off to the right if that's what they really believe and they were only going towards the center because they had incentive to to win the election. This could also work differently. In other words, elections could make candidates pander to their bases and maybe there are more people on the right, so they shoot off to the right. And then when they have no more electoral incentives, they're actually more centrist, so they move to the center. In either case, this is a movement based on electoral incentives that they explore. So it's not just one direction or the other, is it more extreme or more centrist? So if they see direction, if they see movement in either direction, that constitutes a change in ideology based on electoral incentives. So what they find, they use the W nominate score that we discussed earlier, and they find almost no difference in ideological position. First, overall, Democrats and Republicans, and then they broke it, break it into Republican and Democrat samples. Um, they post the W nominate results. They say that it may be a little bit too crude of a measurement to detect important, but less tangible changes in ideological positioning of the candidates. Cause it is, like I said, it, it, it flattens ideology a little bit with the quantitative measurements. Um, so what they turn to next is, and again, it's always exciting to see clever means of getting around a methodological difficulty they turn to interest group scores. So they look at conservative interest groups, see how they score a candidate, and then they look at um, more progressive interest groups and see how they score a candidate. Findings here, they share again, very similar, very similar W nominate scores. They show the results are statistically insignificantly different from zero, meaning that the changes in ideology um, based on where a candidate starts or where a candidate is with electoral incentives and when they're terming out is no different. So the candidate who you may say, oh, he's gonna fly right when he reaches his term limit. There, we don't find any evidence of that in state legislatures. And similarly, the candidate who is gonna shoot to the middle after starting on the far right, we don't find, they don't find evidence of this. Sometimes it's literally zero difference <laughs> at all. So that's not shown in the results that they provide. Findings here they share are in general in line with research that shows rigidity in candidate platform. Sure, they admit there may be idiosyncratic shifts 
that are undetectable and such broad quantitative measurements across 14 different states, across a bunch of different years, but they say overall and the methods that they use, which are measure systematic changes, there's no presence of this ideological shifting based on term limits in particular. And so now moving to the conclusion, we're getting close here, we've gone through results, now let's go to conclusion. So in conclusion, electoral incentives induce incumbents to spend energy increasing visible productivity in the forms of what was outlined before, sponsoring legislation, serving on committees, and roll call voting. In other words, they find that electoral incentives such as term limits induce, and that's what their word, induce, not cause, induce incumbents to spend more energy increasing visible productivity. Second, they find that electoral composition, electoral competition does not seem to drive detectable changes in candidate ideology and platform proposed. Finding again falls in line with previous legislator on rigidity of candidates in state legislative elections. In the last paragraphs, we get a bit of content about how the authors think their findings are relevant to the current and long-standing debate about term limits, which is one piece in a long-standing debate about democracy. So, and again, I love this about a lot of academic research is that you realize how vast the world is, you realize how unpredictable it is, and so when you come away with results, you don't say, oh, we need to abolish term limits in every country, and they should have abolished it hundreds of years ago, and we need to abolish it at every single level of the U.S. government, you know? That's not what their findings point to, and so you can't just say, oh, term limits are bad for democracy, because that's not what they're finding. That's not what their methods would show to be necessarily true. So what do they say is important and substantive about their findings? Importantly, and they take careful note of this, they do not show that term-limited officials shirk their responsibilities and become worse legislators. Rather, the results show that they do not allocate their energy in the same way, in the same way, the three visible ways that they measure productivity. The scope of this paper does not answer what they do with their time, and they give examples, be it leisure or serving constituents in other ways, end quote, but it only establishes that they do not focus on the visible effort specifically measured in this paper. That's an important qualification, because you can't just go and say people are becoming worse legislators because of term limits. You can say they're becoming less productive as measured by these three visible units of these three visible variables of productivity so and i think there's a bit of hinting at these are these are decent measurements of productivity as i said before this is how interest groups evaluate candidates and a lot of voters evaluate candidates but it's not absolutely conclusive maybe they're serving their constituents in a in another way they're meeting with them more often maybe in their final term they're they're thrown off with the pressures of election and appealing to the masses and they can actually get more busy on their way. These aren't precluded by the findings, but there is a suggestion that their, their method was, is somewhat effective at measuring how term limits affect legislator productivity and it does seem to drop off in the final term. Secondly, 
And this is one of their conclusions um, that they offer. Secondly, there are other ways that adding term limits may boost overall legislative productivity. They give examples that there may be new blood in the legislature more frequently and more new ideas coming in. And it could boost overall legislative productivity, though there are still a couple um, term limited out people. So maybe there's 100 people on this legislature, but instead of all of them constantly um, competing, maybe there'll be a couple termed out people, but the term limits will allow, because it could, in the 100 people, that's what I was going to say, it could be 100 people that maybe 50, to be extreme, 50 are on their eighth term, you know, their eighth term is a lot. Maybe they're slowing down, but they just have name recognition. And so the point of a term limit could be good in that it brings in new blood, new refreshing perspectives of young people and information, even though there are five or 10 termed out people who have dropped overall productivity. So they don't say a legislator is going to be, or legislature is going to be worse because of term limits. There could be other mechanisms that a term limit actually is positive for generating new information and perspectives and energy within a legislature, even though a couple may be termed out and spending their time on less product, visibly productive um, means as a legislator. So at the very end, we get this amazingly humble scholarly statement, quote, for these reasons, we are cautious in applying our findings to the normative debate over term limits and see our analysis as primarily valuable for shedding light on the core function that elections play in altering the behavior of re-election-minded legislators. What this means is that given their constraints and limitations of the study, though very well done, and I like this one a lot, they don't want people taking the study and running with it, like I said, saying, see, we found scientific evidence that we need to abolish term limits for the sake of democracy in a healthy country. I can totally see the headline that says, new study determines term limits to be haphazard for democracy. My platform, John 2024, is to abolish term limits. And people may believe because it has a scientific backing. And they say, we are not offering that in the normative, philosophical, theoretical, larger, long-standing debate of democracy. We are interested in, and we found very interesting results about the role, the function that elections, thought of as incentives, play in the life of a re-election-minded legislator. And I'm sorry I didn't, I'm not sure if I said end quote there, but it ended at um, re uh, re-election-minded legislators about a minute ago, just to be clear. So that was their paper. As I said, I think well done. This one was interesting. Uh, there were a couple moments that I was impressed by the methods they used. They were creative and how they got to it. it was, it's a really relevant question as the question of democracy is so prevalent in current discourse. And I'm just going to offer a couple conclusions of my own perspective on this paper. We'll wrap up very shortly. Just want to thank um, Dr. Alexander Fornays and Dr. Andrew B. Hall for their work on this paper. As I mentioned earlier, their note about 100 hours for a state doing it manually as someone who does data entry. Um, in addition, you know, you always want to do the data analysis. You never want to have to be 
doing all the cleaning of the data, especially when it's really hard to get to. And so to be top level researchers at great institutions doing that, it, it was a great effort, great result from the effort that went into it. Um, something that I'd be interested in looking at is at how legislators do spend their time when they hit their term limit. Maybe this would be a qualitative study that only could be done by people who have gained the trust of legislators who they could be honest with or someone um, in depth following them around to see what they are doing. If they are spending a lot of time in leisure, being less productive, then it adds even more credibility to the findings here that term limits do really drop productivity as measured. Um, it, would, it would add a little more robustness to their productivity index or not necessarily the index, but they're finding that productivity does drop off. It would kind of strengthen that factor of unproductivity. Second, generally on state elections, uh, maybe there's literature on this, I haven't seen it, but I'd be interested to see if candidates are more extreme in state legislative elections um, than like general presidential elections because they are less visible. The intuition from that comes, to, comes from the general idea that primaries are more extreme than general elections because political information is costly. Only those who can exert the cost are those who are most interested, most passionate, most informed, who tend to be the most extreme voters in any election. So those are the ones that show up. There's a great paper by, I believe it's Chris Talsanovich and Lynn Vavrick, maybe one other person at UCLA that talks about midterm elections that hopefully we can go through in the future. But the idea would be similar. I'd be curious if state legislative and other um, lower ballot elections tend to be more extreme because only the most extreme passionate people are voting in those. So just in general, something I'd be interested in that maybe we could come up later. And then finally, this paper is in conversation with the longstanding debate about term limits. On the one hand, as simply as I can formulate it again, if you have term limits, then this paper shows that people slack off. Well, people will be less productive to use their language um, but at least there'll be a limit to a ruler, you know? We won't have King George for life or something like that. But on the other hand, having no term limit may increase productivity. Awesome. But it also leaves us with the possibility with a legislator of a very extremely overstayed welcome who's there for 50 years, who's only there because of name recognition and isn't that great. And so there's really a big toss up on the term limits and this is an important contribution to that overall literature. So in closing, thank you again, these two professors for their work here. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Political Science Report. We have a Twitter that you can follow, the Political Science Report, or at the PolySci Report. Uh, there'll be some updates as well as just news posted on there, um, following some researchers that I'll be um, talking about. And so, if you want to kind of interact with them and see what they're all about and not just follow news, but follow researchers in this field, scientific study of politics, um, that could be somewhere as a, a means of finding who they are. Um, in closing, again, want to thank you. Next week will be episode two and episode two in this series of the six most impactful as measured. Again, just want to be really specific as measured by the attention metric used by the APSR, and that one is the effects of television advertising in U.S. election. That one by John Sides, Lynn Vavrick, and Christopher Warshaw. 
Thank you so much again for listening, and I hope to see you next week as we go through that article. Bye.